Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I know so many people that are lukewarm. Like, yeah, the job's pretty good. You know, there's good benefits, but I don't really like it. I'm not really doing what I want to be doing, but I can't imagine leaving, you know, this. And I had nothing to lose. And I had so much pain. And I think the greatest thing that happened in my life was that I had absolutely nothing to lose. I didn't have a job to lose. I didn't have a reputation to lose. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't impress my parents with my grades and get into Brown. And then I had to say, no, dad, you know, I want to go be an entrepreneur. And they're going to be like, what? Like you put all this time in. And I, like I had nothing. So I had this blank slate that I basically, as much pain as it was, I was like, I can kind of choose what I want to do. And I don't even have to make that much money because I'm gonna, I can go work at a convenience, I can go work at a Photoshop, you know, like an area like that, that prints photos, and I do my thing on the side. The, the, the blank palette of not having anybody to answer to and no expectations allowed me to create exactly the career that I wanted to do, which is so ironic, because I never would have thought that was the case at the time. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Vince, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Yeah, so I was referred to you by way of our mutual friend, Clay Haybear, who has sent me nothing but amazing people to interview, so I'm expecting nothing less from you. Yeah, I uh, said that's a lot of pressure. Uh, but, I'm but before we get into your work, uh, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on your life and your career? Oh, I, had, I grew up in, uh, was born in Queens, New York, moved out to Long Island, New York um, as a kid, and I think it had more than I ever realized until I was older and I moved away, how much of an impact, like even in just my personality, the way I handle people. Um, moving to the Midwest was a, was a culture shock for me. Uh, we live in Pittsburgh now, but we lived in Indiana. And realizing that I was a New Yorker, I didn't realize I was a New Yorker until I left. And I realized, oh my God, we are so different than everybody else. So yeah, it, it's still brought into conversation all the time now at 46. Um, so how old were you when you left New York? I was 26 years old. Oh, wow. So you, you literally did grow up in New York, like your whole yeah. childhood, adolescence, all of that was in New York. Yeah, all the pain, yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah. And you're of Italian descent, you said, right? I am. So I'm curious, what, uh, what if any, impact did uh, culture have on the choices that you've made? Because I know that, you know, being of Indian descent, like it's had a huge impact on the choices that I've made or chose not to make. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's been a tremendous amount. We didn't, you know, we're Italian, but we're not like the Italian that you see in the movies, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it, there wasn't the deep seated culture, um, that I've even seen in other Italian families. Like we have a wonderfully close family, but it wasn't like everything was done this way because we're Italian and everything. So it was, it was a blend cause you grow up in a blended community, you know, on Long Island, a lot of Jewish people, some Italians, you know, where we were. So it, was, it wasn't like we weren't in Brooklyn where everybody was, you know, the same and kind of like all the tradition and culture. So it was, it was muted. I would say it, was, it would be a muted. Hmm, wow. Uh, well, what exactly planted uh, the seed for you to become, of all things, a sports photographer? Because I know you've you know, been able to photograph some iconic moments. Yeah, uh, it was out of pain and desperation. I was, uh, I was 22 years old. Actually, I'll, I'll back up. I was a terrible student um, and, in school. So I literally graduated. I found out the day before graduation that I was even going to graduate from high school. Um, I never cared. I never, I never saw the value in it. Um, I was, I was not a good student. So I remember even my, my guidance counselor saying to me, like, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I just, I don't care. I don't know. I just don't want to wear a tie. And I remember I was 16 years old and she was annoyed with my answer, but I was serious. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did not want to follow the path that everybody else in school was going with, which was just go to college, go, go to an Ivy league, which I wasn't qualified for anyway, mm. and then get an office job. Um, I saw that my dad was an entrepreneur and my mom was a, was a government worker. So I saw a kind of a contrast and I always leaned towards what my dad did, even though he went, you know, had really hard financial times. Like we had a, um, his partner in business one day literally emptied out the bank accounts and left. Mm -hmm. And we were 15 years old, like broke, like we're about to lose the house. It was tremendous, um, uh, trouble we, we went through, but I still loved what he was doing and the freedom that he had. Um, so I wandered, you know, for years, I, uh, I was a thief just to be totally honest with you. I, I worked at a, at a convenience store and I, and I had very little scruples with my coworkers and we would kind of overcharge customers. I got arrested for stealing when I worked at a, a record world factory. If you're old enough to remember record world, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I got taken out in handcuffs and you know, it was one of those things where I literally at 22 years old, I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, with a nightmare that I got caught stealing again. And I, I just sat up, you know, three o'clock in the morning and I was like, you know, I, I just sweating and I went downstairs and I still live with my parents. I had moved back in with my parents and my dad came downstairs and, you know, we didn't get along very well. And if you could tell by my history, there was a good reason why, you know, I, I wouldn't have liked me either mm -hmm. if I was him. And, uh, and he basically said to me, I, he said, what's wrong? And I said to him for the first time in my life, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I, got, I was just scared and frightened. Like it all hit me at once. You know, in high school, people worry about this at 15. I didn't worry about it until I was 22. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was already, you know, on a bad path. And he literally said to me, he looked at me, he got a glass of water. And he said, well, you like traveling. You like sports. Because that's what I did. I listened to, you know, music and I watched sports. I was, I was kind of a bum. And he goes, you like taking pictures. But I had like a point and shoot camera. He said, why don't you take a photography class? That, 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 that was it. And, and I said... I said to myself, I'm going to do this. I said, I'm going to fail because I failed at anything else, everything else I've done in my life. 
but at least it sounds cool. So next year when I say I failed, at least I tried, you know, photography, a sport. Because I remember th- looking on TV and like instead of being a cr- in the crowd, like could I actually be on the field with these guys? Could I be taking the pictures instead of being, you know, a fan? So it was the first time in my life I went all in. So I, I bought a camera the next day. I signed up for classes at community college. And all of a sudden I had drive, like literally overnight. And that's that's how it started. Wow. Um, several questions come from this, uh, as you might have mentioned, why is it that you think, you know, people who are in those moments at, at sort of a fork in the road, right? You got arrested and you can either continue down this path of, of potentially petty theft and even bigger things, um, potentially finding yourself in jail for a long time or deciding that, Hey, I'm going to go all in on this photography thing. What do you think separates the people who choose between those two paths in that moment? I really honestly quite often think it's the pain. I really do. Um, you know, I know so many people that are lukewarm. Like, yeah, the job's pretty good. You know, there's good benefits, but I don't really like it. I'm not really doing what I want to be doing, but I can't imagine leaving, you know, this. And I had nothing to lose. And I had so much pain. And I think the greatest thing that happened in my life was that I had absolutely nothing to lose. I didn't have a job to lose. I didn't have a reputation to lose. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't impress my parents with my grades and get into Brown. And then I had to say, no, dad, you know, I want to go be an entrepreneur. And they're going to be like, what? Like you put all this time in and I, like I had nothing. So I had this blank slate that I basically, as much pain as it was, I was like, I can kind of choose what I want to do. And I don't even have to make that much money because I'm going to, I can go work at a convenience. I can go work at a Photoshop, you know, like an area like that, that prints photos. And I do my thing on the side. The, the, the blank palette of not having anybody to answer to and no expectations allowed me to create exactly the career that I wanted to do, which is so ironic because I never would have thought that was the case at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you say to people who look at their life, um, particularly if they're further along in life? I mean, you're 26 and I, I thought about a, a lot about this, especially because I'm, I'm, you know, uh, around the corner from turning 40 and, and things look a lot different than I thought they would when I was 26. Um, what do you say to somebody who says, you know what, but I don't have a blank canvas? I think everybody does. I, I, don't, I don't buy that because when, when you can have a conversation and you can really dig into what you like, what you love, what you like helping people with, mm-hmm. you know, that's where it's changed for us. Like now we're into helping other people do that. I think it was on John Lee Dumas I heard a couple weeks ago, which is like the greatest person you could become is somebody who helps the person that you used to be. Mm. And I was like, that hits because I used to be this person. So even my photography career was very selfish. It was what I wanted to do. And when I needed to get the picture, like I'm going to have to kind of bump you out of the way to get it a lot of times, right? But it was very I accomplished a lot. Everybody admires it, but it was kind of empty after a while because it was all about me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really see who I was helping. I didn't see what I was helping, but I was getting to do really cool stuff. I still do. But that's where like even these last three years has, has phased into helping other people do that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's always a progression. There's always a pivot. And I think there's always something that we are either good at or we can help somebody else with, which I think is more important, that gets us closer. I don't think you're ever there. Yeah. Like, like if you would have told me right now, you know, if you told me 10 years ago, you'll be where you're at right now. Like we're literally traveling all 50 states with our family after this book launch. Like that's what we're doing this whole year. I would have said, you know, game over. I won. But no, I'm here and I'm like, there's more things to accomplish. There's mm-hmm. more things to, so I don't think you ever get there. I think you always just need to be moving closer. So when somebody says, I don't have that, like you have to have something to get started. And all you really need to do is get started and not stop. Yeah. Um, Why do you think it is that we have this illusion of sort of this I've made it moment or this moment of arrival? Uh, Like, where does that come from? And why is it that somehow it's only by getting to where you think you want to go, you won't you realize that? That's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer for it because I'm trying to figure it out myself. Yeah. Um, because I struggle with it, but I've I've come to I've come to accept it. I've come to like I love that because you know we we did an interview. There were two interviews we did. You know, with famous people. Like one was John Mellencamp, and he came to town. We did. A, I photographed the concert with him, so we got to interview him. And they and his his album wasn't doing great at that time. This was probably early 2000s, and the interview it, it was kind of like sarcastic, like. Do you miss the days of, you know, pink houses, like the, the big song? And he laughed and he said, he goes, man, I've been to the top and there's nothing up there. So I'm good doing what I'm doing. 
And I remember hearing that, and it really hit me. And there was another one was Deion Sanders, and he had won the Super Bowl. I think it was with the 49ers, mm. his first, first one that he ever won. And that was his dream his entire life. And it was one of the most down nights of his life because he won the Super Bowl, the, the be-all, end-all, the pinnacle. And he was depressed. He was like, this is it. This is, this is what everything, like, it doesn't feel like what I thought it would be. And I think that's when he said he almost committed suicide that offseason. I remember hearing that, you know, later on that, that that was the case. So it really told me, like, you never get there. And so when I'm 93, I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be trying to be the guy that I am when I'm 98. Mm-hmm. And once I accepted that, it's like, this is just a fun game to keep growing and learning and making mistakes with. And there's not a, it's just a better than yesterday thing. So that's taken a long time for me to develop and learn. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because I think that another thing that comes up um, when we're in these situations, you know, you said, you know, better than yesterday. And so often the person we're trying to compete against is somebody else. And really the only person worth competing against in life is a previous version of yourself. 100%. And I don't, you couldn't have told me that at a certain point in my life. <laughs> yeah. There's, I'm sure there's people right now that, yeah, that sounds good, but I got to do this. Or my parents think I need to do this. No, there comes a point, and maybe that's maturity. I don't know what it is. It took me a long time to mature. Um, but yeah, it's the type of thing where it's, I wake up, and, and that's what I need to do. I need to be better than yesterday. Mm-hmm. It takes all the stress away. Yeah. If, if I'm not better than yesterday, then I get stressed. Yeah. Right? I didn't do anything today or uh-huh. this week. But I don't need to be, you know, this guy. I need to be me better than I was yesterday. And it's just like, okay, I don't worry about the past. I'm not stressed about the future. It's just today I got to do it. And uh, I think that's just growth. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you're traveling with your family. So I'm guessing that you are a parent. And um, I'm really curious, you know, a lot of parents listen to our show. And I'm curious what you would want them to know. And how has this whole perspective influenced the way that you're raising your children? Oh, it's it's. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, what, what this, it's, this is what we teach them. This is, this is my obligation. You know, we have three boys, they're 12, 10 and six. And, and, you know, it was kind of put in my place, even when I was writing my book and I was doing research and I heard something from Reverend Billy Graham and, you know, everybody's trying to build this huge platform and they want to, you know, they want this following and they asked him, and this was way back before Twitter, you know, on Facebook. And they said, how could you have had the big, a bigger impact in your life? And he said to them, and he was 90 about the time, I think, he said, you know, I've spoken to stadiums filled with 80 and 90,000 people. And he said, but if I would have spent more time with my three kids, I would have had a bigger impact on the world. Mm. And that just hit me because I'm like, no matter how big you build your platform, that's a big platform. You get to speak to 90,000 people in a stadium. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when, I mean, not at that moment, but that really maybe said, this is, this is where the, the main effort has to go. And I knew that, but that really put it in place for me. So even as we build these businesses, even as we do this, we want to do this together. We want to teach them the lessons. So, you know, on this tour, you know, like we're driving around and I'm not sure if you're familiar, like Dave Ramsey, like mm-hmm. my kids got to meet him, you know, in person when we, when we dropped off a book, Dan Miller. We, we met with Pat Flynn last week here in San Diego. Yeah. My son got to talk to Pat for an hour, 12 years old. I'm like, do you realize, you know, how valuable that is? And we're talking about the things that we're learning. So you know, we homeschool. So this is their school. This is, and this is where I think it needs to go in the future is they need to learn this stuff now because, you know, it's not going the way I would want to teach in school. That's why, that's why we went this direction. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a, it's a huge part of my life. Yeah. Um, let's do this. Um, walk me through how you get from, you know, that early photography class to doing the work that you today, like the things that have happened in between high points, low points, inflection points. Uh, I'm really curious because I, I think one of the things I had told you is I'm one of these weirdos who doesn't know a damn thing about sports, but plays sports video games. Um, almost every day I play Madden, but I couldn't tell you anything about what's going on in the NFL. The only game I ever watch is the Super Bowl. That's awesome. <clears throat> um, but, you know, I'd imagine that you ca- you've captured some incredible moments in history. And, and I'm just curious, like from, you know, that early photography class to this amazing career, like what's happened? How did you get to this point? Oh, man, that's that's there's a lot there um, in terms of how do we get here? Um, are you talking about stories like this? I mean, there's story. So however you want to tell it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's just it's just been a, like. Okay, let me let me think about that. That's a great question because there's so much. I mean, I, I've shot for 23 years. I'll, yeah. I'll go back that way. You know, I've shot Super Bowls, World Series, NHL final, like anything you can imagine with sports. You know, four U.S. presidents, like when they come around, like I'm, I photograph them. 
Um, so it's been a steady, it, okay, I'll, I'll give you the, the best lesson that I got along the process. I, I was in New York and I worked in New York and I was freelancing and I wanted to work for the Associated Press. You know, in Manhattan, Rockefeller Center, right next to, you know, NBC, like we, we, the tree and everything. And I, I wanted to get there because that's where the big assignments came. Like I was freelancing for a, new, for a newspaper in New York, but that was like, when you get an assignment for the AP, it's, it's a world leader, it's a major event, every single assignment. So this was like six weeks of me trying to get in there after back work before that. And I finally got a meeting with Jonathan Elmer, who was the editor, and he canceled the meeting. I was like, ah, oh. and then he, and I said it again for next Monday, and he canceled it again. This went on for six weeks. And finally, they took my, they took my meeting, and I got in there with my portfolio, you know, and I walk in there at Rockefeller Center, and I sit down at the office, and he said something to me that changed my life. And he said, Vincent, he goes, I want to thank you for your patience and your persistence. He goes, without either of them, we wouldn't be here right now. And, I, and I, as he's looking through my pictures where I got the gig shooting for the AP, I remember thinking, like, don't forget that, patience and persistence. Because it's what I needed because the patience was a thing. Like, I didn't I, – I lacked patience. I was very impatient. I wanted everything now as it was. I needed to get it. it the persistence, you know, I had. I didn't have the patience. Mm-hmm. But putting them together was like – Without, if I just had patience, I would have waited too long and none of this would have ever happened. Yeah. And I know a lot of people like that. If I would have had persistence, I would have annoyed the crap out of everybody and I would have been pushed out quickly. So I, every assignment I've taken, every job, every connection, every relationship, I think that way. Mm-hmm. Patience and persistence. And that was probably the biggest lesson I got. I'm not sure if you're looking for lessons, but there's a million stories, you know, yeah. from shooting the Super Bowl to having... You know, I worked for the World Wrestling Federation for two years during their heyday. Wow. And uh, I, I could tell you a funny story. <laughs> you want to yeah, hear a story? I'll tell you. Absolutely. Well, when I first started there, um, I got the gig and it was a pay-per-view gig. So I flew into, I think it was Milwaukee, and we did a pay-per-view gig. You know, this was Stone Cold Steve Austin. This was when it was all booming. And so I did all the grunt work. And the next, so that day, we were doing some photo shoots backstage. So Gold Dust, who's like, I think he's 6'6", 240 pounds. He's the son of Dusty Rhodes, who's uh, you know, one of the most famous yeah. wrestlers of all time. <laughs> I remember him. So he sees me, and he's in his makeup and the costume. And he, you know, the wrestlers don't have very much say in terms of how the photo shoot goes. Like the photographer set up the lighting. and everything. But he looks at me, and he tells me to get a reflector, a gold reflector. He goes, stand over there. And he like, yells at me. And I'm like, this is my first day. I'm going to do whatever he says, even though he's not my boss. So I stand there. And I'm holding the reflector and he's kind of like sniping at me. They do the shoot and then he goes to catering to go get dinner for the show. So Rich, Frida, the one of the photographers, comes up to me and he gives me the Polaroid. We were shooting with Polaroids back to check the lighting. And he goes, bring this over to, you know, Dustin, was his name. And he goes, see what he thinks, which was not protocol, but I didn't know this. And I walk it over to him and he looks at me and he crumbles it up and he curses at me and he rolls it and throws it right in my face says, this looks like crap, but, you know, not that language, and walks away from me. I'm like, oh, man, that wasn't good. So I pick it up, and I bring it back, and they go, well, that's just, you know, that's just Dustin. Don't, don't worry about him. Just stay away from him. He's kind of he's mean. So we get ready for the show. My first show ever, and I'm putting my headset on because, you know, you, you need to have your headset on so you don't get in the way of the TV cameras or you don't get blown up by pyro. So you need to know what's going on all around you. So I'm ringside, and I'm literally getting ready to walk out to ringside, and I, I feel a slap on my back. And I look up and it's gold dust. He's looking right down at me, a huge guy. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. And he says, do you work here full time? And I'm like, no, I'm stuttering. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm on contract or whatever I said. And he looked me right in the eye and he goes, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And he walked away. <laughs> and I just stood there stunned. And, you know, so I, I walk out and I'm going out to, I'm, now I'm literally have to walk out on the ramp to the ring and he's about to wrestle you know, four matches in and I'm shaking. I'm as nervous. And I just look at Tom, my, my, you know, my boss. And I'm like, what do I do? So I'll never forget. I'm in my headset and I hear like the crackling and I hear enter gold dust. Cause you know, who's coming in next. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like here it goes. Like, and I was, I was not nervous. I'm like, okay, it's going to be on TV. So I'm safe. And as soon as he gets in the ring, he puts the wrestler, the other guy is the opponent in the headlock. And he's looking right at me and he's like sneering. And it's the first time I remember like, Oh my goodness, I'm not safe. He could use me as a prop. Like he could throw me in the ring. They do this all the time. You know, they, they could take the photographer and use him as a prop. He could really hurt me. Like he could, and, and I, 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 you know, everybody pretends like they're hurt. I'll really be hurt. I'll be selling it very well, but I'll really be hurt. I'm like, I was so scared. And he walked, he won the match. He walked out of the ring. He left and nothing happened. And I went home and I almost quit. I called my boss, 
<laughs> and I almost, and he goes, no, you know, we'll talk to people. So the next week we're in Texas in Austin and he, and Goldust sees me and he yells at me. He goes, you cost me $10,000, brother. You know, Vince McMahon fined me for screwing with you and I won't forget this. And so this went on and it went on and it went on and on. It got muted. You know, it wasn't as bad, but it went on. So two years working there. And then I finally, I quit to go back to school. I didn't, I, I had to go get, I was going to get my degree. So I said, I'm done working here. And they hired me for one last shoot, which was a documentary, you know, a three day behind the scene thing. And the last night of the shoot, we all gathered together. They did kind of like a thing for me because it's my last shoot and they're telling stories and we're telling, and we start talking about pranks and then Rich starts talking about the biggest prank they've ever pulled. And they're telling the story about gold dust and me and blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at them and they're laughing and with me like I should be laughing. And I said, guys, that was an awesome story, but you forgot to tell me it was a prank. They never told me the whole thing was set up, but I, they, they were supposed to tell me like that day. They never told me. So it went on for two years. I thought this guy wanted to kill me. So wow. That's a little bit of it. Wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age, led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Oh. Um, you know, when you're photographing like Super Bowls or, or you know, NHL championships, you know, moments uh, in these careers, I mean, what do you what do you look for? Um, and, and what have been some of your most unforgettable you know, moments that you've seen through the lens of a camera? Oh, yeah. Um, it's emotion for me. It's 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 a moment in time that will never come back. Um, like I, I photographed the Super Bowl where the where the Patriots beat the Rams, Tom Brady's first Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And it was right, th right after 9-11. And it was just so, I mean, just, just the security, you know, four layers of security to get in. You got to be there. I, I remember that was 2002. I started my career 2004, 2005. And I remember walking in and it was almost like, I wish there was like a camera crew because I remember walking in the lights of the Superdome and I remember walking onto the turf and be like, oh my God, I made it. That was the moment where I was like, I made it. Like this was a dream of mine forever you know, watching the Super Bowl growing up. I'm like, I am on the field at the Super Bowl. And then, you know, the halftime show was U2. And I'm looking to my right and I see this guy that looks like Bono, but I'm like, he's that, it looks like Bono's kid. Like he's short. He didn't look very big. I, 
know, you had this larger than life perception. And all of a sudden, I'm like, well, that's Bono. He's like three feet away from me. He walks out on the stage and does one of the most, you know, iconic Super Bowl halftime shows ever. You know, the tributes at 9-11. Mm. Uh, just those moments. Like even this year when the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, I was in Nashville. I'm one of the loudest arenas I've ever heard. Um, just to be a part of that, to be a part of history. And I went back, I stayed at my friend's house, it was two o'clock in the morning, and my ears were still ringing and the game ended four hours earlier. And you know, to look back on that picture, you freeze it in time, but when you think about when you shot it, I don't even remember shooting it because you're in such a zone that you're just looking for that. And while everybody else, 19,000 people are screaming and arms waving, you, you don't hear any of it. Mm-hmm. You're just looking and you're looking, and not only getting it in focus and capturing it, but making it creative and making it timely. Um, that's the challenge to me. I, I can never get tired of that part of it. Hmm. And you focused individuals as well, right? I'm curious, um, for the people that you focused as individuals, what is the interaction with them like? Um, what do you see through the camera that they don't perceive you seeing? Um, and what are the moments that lead to a connection between you and somebody you're photographing? In, in sports, it's different because, like, I joke around. Everybody's like, "Oh my god, you're on the sidelines!" Like, yeah, I'm. I joke around like it's like you're three. It's like you're five inches away, but you're a million miles away. Mm. Like I'm on the sidelines, and you know when the Steelers won the playoff game last year, you know it's Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, which are the big names in the Steelers. If you're not familiar, and and me, you know, the three of us. Like I have no business being there, and they'll joke with us. Like they'll they'll pull pranks on photographers sometimes, and there's always time like Antonio Brown comes up to me, goes, "Let me get your email address. I got to get that picture." <laughs> and then the PR guy cuts in front and he's like, no, give me, he gives me his, I'm like, I don't want your email. Like, that'd be kind of cool if Antonio gave me his email address and we go back and forth. Yeah. Like you have, there's always something funny, like, like getting run over. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's something you have to worry about because especially now with the internet, you know, you get knocked over in some kind of silly moment on the sidelines. You'll, you know, you'll get home and you'll be internet famous in a way you don't want to be. <laughs> so, you know, you, like it wasn't like that 10 years ago. Now it's like, you don't want to. You don't want to be caught like looking at your phone. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Aren't you working? You know, everybody sees you. So there's these, it's this public eye. It's, it's, it's fun. It's funny. It's like anything else because there's so much boredom that goes with it. There's mm-hmm. so much pregame stuff and postgame work and all. Everybody sees all the highlights. Um, but there's not that much interaction when you talk about the sports in terms of the players. You're, you're pretty much on your own. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of got a little tired of in terms of photography. I felt like I was by myself. And I love conversation and I love meeting with people and I love helping people. So it's like that kind of, I feel lonely when I'm doing it. So that's, that's, I think at that moment when I realized that is when I started fading a little bit away from the photography part, because I'm like, I don't really want to just document other people's lives my entire time and not be a part of it. Mm -hmm. How has, um, the advent of social media, you know, digital tools like iPhones, Instagram, how has that sort of affected your career? How, How does that affect the craft of photography in your opinion? We've kind of not embraced it the way others have. We've been very old school in terms of it. So it hasn't affected me too much because I'm pretty much to myself with what I do. We haven't built up the Instagram following like we could have. Um, But as the time it's happened is when we were also kind of pushing away from it. So you see people becoming internet famous, like Instagram famous. And that wasn't – by the time we started realizing this is something that we did – and we're not going to be doing and we're going in a different direction. That's when all that stuff started really ramping up. So we've kind of been like, eh, it's not a big deal for us. And, and we're not private people at all, but we're, it's just not, it's just never been, so, we're, we're always been about relationships, mm-hmm. one-on-one relationships, connection. And it's never really been about the following part of the end. And too good or bad, you know, it's good in ways that we keep our sanity. It's bad in terms of like, we should probably be much more well-known than we are. <laughs> but, you know, I don't really, it's not a big deal to us. Um, do you have a, a favorite moment in sports photography that you photographed? Like one that stands out above all the others? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. There's so many. There are just so many. I mean, like I said, that Super Bowl moment was – no, yeah, I do. I do. Um, it was probably the first thing. It was probably the first – it was my first press pass. Um, I – it was 1995. And even if you're not a sports fan, you know Brett Favre. Mm-hmm. Brett. And so it was Brett Favre. I think it was his first MVP season. And, it, and it, it's so meaningful to me in so many ways because it was a year after I found photography. You know, it was literally like that, that moment I told you about where I got, you know, with my dad. That was May of 94. Well, this was August of, two, of 95. So not that far after. You know, I had been hustling, you know, sneaking into y- Yankees and Mets games, sneaking up to the front row, like almost every night, five, six nights a week to, to like 
photograph, you know, from, from close or meet the photographers or find out what kind of film they used or ask how you get a job in this industry or how does this crazy photography world work? That's what I would do five, six nights a week while I would work during the day at some crappy job. Well, I decided to take a two week road trip around the Midwest and try to go to like nine different stadiums and do the same thing there. Go to Cincinnati, buy a cheap ticket, sneak down to the front, try to get a good picture of Pete Rose, whatever it would be, you know, and go back and forth. Um, for the last night I was in Milwaukee and, and I could go to Chicago and there was an Elton John concert and I love Elton John. I was like, you know, but I'd seen him in concert before where the Packers were playing in Lambeau at, in, in Green Bay. And I'm like, well, I've never been to Lambeau and that's a historic field. So I'm going to go to Lambeau. So I drove up to Lambeau. I didn't have a ticket, didn't have a press pass, you know, my hat on backwards. I look like a dope and the game is sold out. And luckily I found this older couple and I'm looking for tickets and it's, there's, it's a preseason game sold out and they're tailgating six game, six hours before the game. It was insane. Um, and I found this older couple and the wife didn't want to go to the game. So the, de- so the husband said, I'll sell you a ticket for $20. So I got a ticket for $20 and I snuck, like I always do, I snuck to the front row, you know, two hours before the game, hour and a half before the game. And I'm shooting ga- pictures of pre of warmups and a guy comes up to me from the field and he looks up and he goes, are you taking pictures? And I said, I said, yeah, I said, I don't know what he's, why he's asking. He goes, I said, what, what do you need? And he said, well, my assistant didn't show up tonight. I'm like, okay. He goes, would you want to be my assistant? And I said, absolutely. And the guy next to me, who was also taking pictures, was changing his film literally at that time. So he had his head down. So he didn't ask him. I had my head up taking pictures. He asked me. He literally opens the gate, hands me a press pass, puts it around my neck. And I'm now a professional photographer. I'm on the field at Lambeau Field. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, how did this happen? So he's pretty much saying, do whatever you want to do. All I need you to do is change film for me once a quarter, and you get to take all the pictures you want. So three minutes later, I'm in the huddle with Brett Favre as the Packers are getting ready to run out into the field. He looks right at me, smiles and wings, because he knows I don't belong. I got like a t-shirt, a hat on backwards. You know, I totally don't fit the part. But I'm like, I'm going to take advantage. This is my only time I'm ever going to be on the field of a football game. So I am going to take, I was in the huddle. They run on the field. Halfway through the second quarter, his name is Jim Jordan, who worked for NFL Films. He, he started my career for me. And he looks at me, and he points, and he, and he says, get in the corner over here, the corner of the end zone. I, I thought I was in trouble. So I ran over, and I kneel down, and Brett Favre rolls out, and he throws a pass to Dorsey Levins from the Packers, scores a touchdown right in front of me. And him and Mark Trimmer, they embrace in this big hug, and I get a picture, best picture I've ever shot in my life up until that point. And I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? And I look at Jim, and he turns back towards me, and he winks. And I'm like, what? what's going on? So I run literally across the back of the end zone and I, I stop him underneath the goalpost. I said, what just happened? And he looks at me, he smiles and he says, well, we've got far mic'd for, for NFL films. I knew where the play was going. So I wanted to put you in a good spot so you can get a picture. And I remember like it was yesterday, just staring up at the sky and you've got being like, you've got to be kidding. Like what is going on tonight? Like what is happening? I photographed the rest of the game. I go into the, I, I was going to go into the locker room, you know, to get the interview with, with Mike Holmgren, the, the coach, to get like the press conference. And I said, can I do that? And Jim's like, yeah, you're NFL films. You can do whatever you want tonight. I'm like, okay, I'm going to. So I went into the, I went into the, the press room and the PR guy comes up to me from the Packers and he looked like the, the, pre, the uh, principal from Back to the Future. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> yeah, totally. He looked just like him. And he said, what are you doing in here? And I said, I'm NFL films. I was kind of like arrogant. I'm like, I'm NFL films, right? And he looks at my press pass and he snaps it off my neck. And he goes, wait right here. And he comes back and he goes, okay, you're good. And I was too nervous to ask anything, but I didn't ask for the press pass back. So I shoot the pictures and I leave the stadium. Literally Lambeau Field before the renovation, you walk from the locker room, you open the door and you are in the parking lot with the crowd. And I remember opening the door and being in the crowd and I said to myself, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be in there. And that's the night my career started. And to this point, I've shot in 140 different stadiums around the country, and that is the only press pass I don't have. Wow. Wow. So I got to get that back somehow. <laughs> so if anybody's listening and knows how to get it back, let's get yeah. it back to you. August something to that. Oh, I think it's the 25th. I think it was August 25th, 1990. Oh, yeah, 1995. So a couple other questions come from this. Um, to get to that point within a year of starting, um, 
I'm really curious about that first year, like how you were spending your time, um, what that period of your life taught you about mastery of craft. Um, but another question uh, on the heels of that, given where you are today, uh, this is a question I, I think that's hot on my mind because of the fact that I have a book coming out about this subject. Um, you know, when we look at creativity, I, I think especially in the modern world, we have become very adamant that it's only worth doing if it leads to some sort of monetary outcome or has a thousand people. It's like, why create something if nobody's going to pay attention? And I I think that's sad. And so the two questions are, you know, in that first year, what did you learn about mastery of craft and has your definition of, of creative success changed uh, throughout your career? Those are great questions. Um, I learned so much from that first year. It was probably the most important year of my life. As a matter of fact, the first five years of my photography career, I think I made less than $20,000. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because when I coach people now, when I teach people now, the biggest problem I see, and it's not just now, is the inability to delay gratification. The inability to be able to say, this is a long game. This is going to take time. Just be, you know, It's like now with the phones, like you can take a great picture with an iPhone, and use a filter, and now it blurs out the background for you. It does everything, you, but there's no, there's no honing of your craft. So what people don't get is, if the phone can do that for you, it can do it for everybody. What are you doing differently that's going to make you stand out? Because it's getting harder and harder to stand out. And that's a vision thing. That is, that is from the heart. That's from the soul. So I had the ability to shoot manual everything, manual cameras, I got, you know, when I worked for the NHL in the first couple of years, like we had to shoot with strobes, which meant that when I took a picture, the, the strobes and the lights in the rafters fired and there was a four second recycle time. So if you think about what sports star, if everybody lays down in a motor drive, you know, eight, eight images per second or 12, I had one every four seconds. So when I started shooting for real, I had my timing down better than everybody because I had to shoot when there was a breakaway. I had one shot to get it. And instead of laying down on it and not developing the chops, I had to study the motion, the move, the eyes, you know, the body. I had to study it. And same thing with that first year. I went and I had to study the light. I had to study the way the players were, the interaction, the in-between moments. That's what I'm really good at is the in-between human moments, subtle, behind-the-scenes storytelling. That's what I love. You know, the action photography is great, but it gets kind of boring to see another levitating football player hmm. but but real moments real things that show humanity and, and the person and the stuff that you know when you see a picture 20 years later you still go that's a great shot that tells a story so that first year just taught me the grit that's needed and now no matter what career i do i take that thing into it i move that because i just know it takes time and it takes patience and persistence and it takes better than yesterday and it's not going to happen overnight you know the best thing that happened to me it didn't, ha- it didn't happen overnight you know, because I got to see what it took to do it. And I don't think that's changed. I think it's gotten harder now because things are so much easier to start. And I think that's a struggle, especially if you're 23 right now and you want to build a following. I Start with one person and do the best you can for them. And they will tell somebody about you. And you don't need that many people to really make it happen. Hmm. And how has your definition of success changed with age? Yeah, it's always changing because I used to think it was money. Uh-huh. I, 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 you know, I used, then I thought it was time, and I think it's more time than money, and that's what, what we value right now is our time. We have three young boys, and we're not giving up that time because when they go off on their own, we will know we did it right by our definition, and our right by our definition was was being with them, and was traveling with them, and was teaching them, and it wasn't. That's why we homeschool now, and I'm not nothing against school or anything like that, or but we saw, you know, the whole her working a job and me working a job and putting the kids in daycare and you know, them going to school and have somebody else teach them, you know, cause I don't even think school, everybody's like, I'm not a teacher. And this is off tangent, but like, like, of course you are. If you, if you have a kid, you're teaching them. But if your definition of teaching them is standardized testing, well, that's not our definition of teaching. Mm-hmm. Our definition of teaching is, is what kind of a person are you? What are you learning? How are you growing? How are you dealing with tra- challenges? How are you interacting with other people? You know, how are you helping other people? How are you connecting with other people? So um, success to me is, is it's so simple. It's being a better person than I, than I was yesterday, right? It was being a better dad, being a better husband, and then having that relate to the people in my life. I, I don't look at it in terms of this big game like people have to know 
who I am or what my following is. It's like, this is where, like, just like Billy Graham, if I spend the time with my kids and my family, I'm having the most impact in the world. So, um, that's, that's a long winded definition of my, my success. You know, I think the thing that struck me most is not necessarily your definition, but the fact that you emphasize that this is our definition. Um, yeah. And it is something that I have thought a lot about over the last year or so um, and how we how we define things. And I think the the most profound thing I realized is that having your own definitions for words gives you a great deal of agency over your life as opposed to operating on somebody else's definition. I, I totally agree with you. Just like somebody listening to me, they don't. I'm not trying to convince them that this is the way they should do it. This is the way we need to do it. If that inspires you and that helps you, that's awesome. If it doesn't, like Seth Godin would say, this is not for you. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not trying to do what everybody else does. I'm usually trying to do the opposite of what everybody else does. Like we went to Legoland here on Sunday and my wife and I were both like, I don't want to say it, but I'm kind of miserable. Like we're, we're kind of in line with everybody else. You know, we don't ever live this life. Like when we go out to dinner, it's when everybody else doesn't. Yeah. You know, we've built our life to where we do things, you know, when we go, you know, even this trip, you know, we're, we're in Tucson, Arizona for a month renting a house. You get it for a song because nobody else is doing it. Beautiful. Weather. Like we do things the opposite. So when we get in line on a Sunday afternoon, with everybody, <laughs> like just, you know, get me out of here. And we know our kids are having a great time. We're trying not to be grumpy about it. But like this isn't the way we want to really spend our days. But even though we love, you know. So, yeah, I, I, this is our definition. And if we could inspire anybody with that to do that or to think, oh, my God, maybe I could do that. Or that sounds great to travel with our kids and, you know, do your work from the road. Like that's wonderful. I'd love to inspire anybody with that. Yeah. So I want to bring this full circle. Um, I know we talked a little bit about your dad and the relationship that you had with him in the beginning. Um, given that he planted this seed in your life and led you to discover so much joy, I'm curious what has happened to the relationship with your dad over time? Yeah, it's a wonderful question because up until five years ago, I still had a ton of resentment towards my dad. Um, believe it or not, like the, the stories I told were the good stories, not that, not that he has bad stories, but we sure. didn't have a great relationship. Yeah. You know, we, even through my thirties, there was always tension. We're, we're both, we, we just butted heads. We're just too, too much alike. <laughs> and, um, so I drive him crazy. He drive me crazy. Uh, and it was a type of thing where I literally started writing a book and, and that was my book. And what happened with the book, I'll be completely honest, it started out very sarcastic and angry. It was kind of a, you know, thumbing my nose at the people that didn't believe in me and saying, you know, kind of pounding my chest, like, here, look, look, I did it. That's how the book started. Um, And then as I started writing it, I I wrote that story that I told you. You know, I wrote the story about my dad 10 years later when we were in a newspaper job and I just won international sports photographer of the year and I got a 3% raise. And I came back to my dad and I said, can I work for you? And he said, no. He said, you work, you live 15 hours away from me. I'd have to retrain you. And he said something that changed my life. He said, he goes, Ben, I've been trying to tell you this. I've been trying to tell you to start a business. He goes, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. And I said, what do you mean? I was finally able to listen to him. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I've been telling you, you could, you could do weddings. You could do commercial work. You could do corporate. But you're settling for a job where they control your schedule and the benefits and you're settling for that. And he goes, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. Those two lessons he gave to me 10 years earlier and that one changed the entire course of our life. We started our first business that day. But in between there was all this tension. When I started writing the book, I started writing these stories about my dad and I realized, oh my God, he's not as bad as I thought he was. And then all of a sudden, by the time the book was over, he was the hero. Not even on purpose. I was like, oh my goodness. I I was blind to so much of this. I listened to those two lessons but I'm pretty sure there were about 2,000 other lessons in there that I didn't listen to <laughs> because I wasn't listening. So our relationship completely changed. I, the resentment I had from went away. Ironically, when the resentment that I had from went away, our relationship started to change. He didn't change. I changed. I stopped being angry. When I stopped being angry, I started acting angry. I stopped acting angry. I started being more grateful. I, I, unbelievably, he started being, he was a nice guy again. He didn't change at all. It was me. So it completely changed our relationship. So now we're, we're great. You know, it's, it's wonderful. And, and, you know, we would have fights over holidays. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, I'm sure it'll happen again at some point. But, you know, <laughs> but it's, you know it's, it's just completely changed because of that. Amazing. 
Um, wow. Uh, I can see now why Clay referred to you as guest. So I have. Did it work? Did I, did I, did I oh, live up? Yeah, no, more than lived up. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Themselves. It has to be. It's, it's them because I just, and it's such a lame answer, but it's true. It's like every, so many people are trying to be somebody else. They're trying to be their following or they do it this way. And the, and the funny thing is with me is people go, I like you because you're authentic. And I, I kind of almost take offense. I'm like, well, what else would I be? Like, <laughs> what, 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 it's a compliment, but I don't even see it. I'm like, it may, is that an indictment of our society? Like, you like, I, I stand out because I'm authentic. Like, I think everybody should be authentic because that's what we really need. So just yourself. And, every, and I think when you stop trying to be somebody else, you get to just kind of let the guard down and be like, I don't really give a crap what people think. I got to just do it my way because if my kids see me being a phony, then I've really failed. You know, if my kids listen to this interview and they go, that's not dad. Like that's, he's acting, he's pretending to be somebody that he's not to do something. Like I failed if that happened. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your, your insights with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure and just so much fun to talk to you. Uh, the is my website. Uh, if anybody has any interest in finding out about, you know, what we do, it's all there. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.